Hey, it's Jeff here. After working as an automotive tech for almost 25 years, I can honestly say that finding employment with the right shop has been the difference maker between loving what I do every day or hating my career choice. Let me tell you, I've been there, but I've also had jobs where work didn't really feel like work. I love the challenge of fixing cars. So loving what I do, that's the easy part. Finding a good place to do it in, now that's been the struggle. And that's where my friends at ProMotive knock it out of the park. They're a recruitment company specializing in jobs for our automotive industry. A-techs, B-techs, master techs, service advisors, managers, you name it. They are constantly looking for applicants in automotive to link them with available job postings at only the best vested shops around the country. ProMotive has a team of professional recruiters that can help you with your resume, prep you for the interview process, and negotiate the best pay and benefits package for you. And best of all, it's free to anyone looking to gain employment. Check them out at gopromotive.com slash Jeff. gopromotive.com slash Jeff. Just think, you could be just five minutes away from finding your dream job. Competent, qualified is the shortage. You have them, you got to retain them. I've already gone down a path where I've got some tools for a guy, already feeling kind of scorned because when I see the toolbox, there's no pride right here because they didn't earn it. I hear, you know, through the podcast and, you know, there's this like, why should we require these people to buy their own tools? And I'm like, I get that. Right now I'm working with a shop where I, you know, my shop, these guys have their own tools. So when I bring on someone new, it's like, okay, I can train and develop this person. And, and really I can't do it. What my opinion is right now is I can't, uh, or I don't want to do it when they first start out. It's like after 60 days, maybe they're doing well. It's like, hey, here's you a set of tools. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another exciting, thought-provoking episode of the Jaded Mechanic Podcast. My name's Jeff, and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this journey of reflection and insight into the toils and triumphs of a career in automotive repair. After more than 20 years of skin knuckles and tool debt, I want to share my perspectives and hear other people's thoughts about our industry. So pour yourself a strong coffee or grab a cold Canadian beer and get ready for some great conversation. With me tonight is uh, um, somebody I don't know very well, Mr. Jason Weatherford, reached out to me about, he is a shop owner, and reached out to me about uh, coming on and, and discussing some of the the shop owner side of things. So um, without further ado, everybody say hello to Jason. Jason, how are you, man? I'm good, Jeff. I'm good. And, uh, you know, yes, I am a, a shop owner I'm in the in the humid south. I'm in Mississippi, north Mississippi. I don't know what it's like for these big winters that y'all talk about in this uh, ice fishing and and all this stuff. You know, I, uh, the, I, uh, the crazy- I do know fishing, yeah, um, but not, not in the uh, extreme cold, more the extreme hot. Yeah. The crazy um, people go ice fishing. That's not my, that's not my gig at all. That's just, that's a lot of like, freezing and waiting for fish and i don't like even when i fish i don't wait for fish i cover a lot of water and move around and um ice fishing up here is more of just a and a different way to for people to drink beer and socialize it's the fishing becomes like fifth on the priority list of what you're actually trying to get out there right you're more trying to catch a buzz than catch a fish which is hey not hating on it it's just it isn't my thing i uh i don't mind the cold but the cold with the boredom 
not my thing. So I can stay at home and be well, cold. You know, I don't have to be uh, out there staring down a hole trying to get smaller fish to bite. So, so you're in Mississippi. Yeah, we're shifting. Mississippi, we're shifting into the SEC uh, football season. So there'll be a lot of people trying to get, you know, buzzed on the weekends with their, <laughs> with their football. Yeah. It's hot there, I imagine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've had some, uh, last couple of weeks have been very hot in the hundreds. So, yeah. But humidity, it's more of a heat, heat index where, you know, 90, it'd be 99 degrees, but heat index is like 115. Yeah. We're, we had a couple of days where we were, we were griping with our index. We were up over a hundred. So, which we're not used to that mm-hmm. here, right? That's, that's pretty, they put out warnings and stuff like that, right? Oh, you can't, oh, you yeah. Can't, don't do that. But I mean, it's, and it's, it's, yeah, it's, only like 80 something, but then the humidex pushes it way up above. And then you're, that's what makes it really hard. I don't mind a dry heat. I can stand that. But when it's just so like thick, it just, yeah, not fun. So, right. So give us your, uh, give us your story, man. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, I guess kind of start from the beginning. I, I wanted to be, uh, go down the, the mechanic route years ago. When I was in high school, I was in auto, uh, vocational school. But I was like, you know, you had two hours a day working in a shop. Um, very, very lax environment. I think probably what turned me away at that time from joining the automotive world was my teacher. Just he had us reading books all day, every day. Uh, he was a retired GM mechanic and he didn't didn't spend a lot of time hands on with us. I was like, I want to learn how to do things yeah we we learned how to mount and balance tires and we hooked up an alignment machine one time we could use a two-post lift and you know it was just like uh fundamentals were spoken about it wasn't really a good uh shop scenario yeah so i think that that kind of pushed me away from the automotive world for a while but i've always been an automotive guy but i went in i went and went to college and you know got the four-year degree and went into finance and mm-hmm. lent people money for a living for 13 years, had some success there and, you know, started looking to get back into something that was my own instead of making somebody else a bunch of money right. yeah. and kind of led me to the path of uh, uh, a franchise opportunity where a guy was looking to sell out three locations. And, you know, over a period of about a year, we worked out uh, arrangements and, and uh, I'm, I am a new shop owner. I've been a shop owner for uh, uh, going on, you know, five months. Mm-hmm. So you didn't, did you go work for this gentleman as an employee in any kind of fast? No, I did not. It was, it was a takeover. Right on. Right. It was, uh, we, I met the guys on a Sunday and Monday I was there, you know, new, new shop owner and, wow. and then uh, started to realize a lot of things that, you know, it doesn't matter how much due diligence you do ahead of time. There's just things that you don't know. Yep. And, you know, when I came on there, I, I mean, I had guys that were like, okay, we were about to quit, but let's uh, see what the new blood is about. And uh, we've, we've had some early success. So, and we've kept some good people. I've replaced some people that should never have been, been in a shop. Right. Um, it's been a lot in the last five months and we have a lot of good things happening right now, but doesn't mean I don't have challenges. I mean, I just had a, had a guy that, um, uh, you know, put a harmonic balancer back on wrong and, and now we got a knocking motor. So can, 
can we talk a bit about why why that gentleman was trying to get out of it? Like what the what was he doing wrong? I guess in, in a in a condensed form, what was he? What was he doing wrong? Uh, in a condensed would be he wanted he wanted so badly to be an absentee owner. Okay. You know he he pushed off all the problems and and I mean not a lot of support with the guys, which you know I mean if you don't feel supported then you're you know you're not working hard. No. to really try to make a difference on anything. I'm I'm not looking to be an absentee owner. I'm looking to grow the business and and do it with the right people. Right. And you know, these guys, they didn't uh, they didn't have a lot of motivation, so I've just tried to, you know, put some of that in place and and it's um it's I've had some really good feedback and I'm trying to, you know, trying to get you know to the point to where you know, these guys feel like this is a career instead of a job Yeah. and we're getting there. It just, it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight, but it's, you know, I, my, you know, the thing is, is that I don't shut people down. I listen, you know, he didn't do a lot of listening and a lot of ordering, ordering around and griping about not making money, I suppose. And yeah. he was, a, he had cameras at the shops and he would send snapshots of things to them. Like on text, but I've seen it. It was, it was weird. <laughs> so, but, uh, that's kind yeah, of it was, and hopefully he doesn't hear this podcast. But there you go. <laughs> Is he? Did he stay so, in the industry? No, no. So he may he may never hear. Was he a long time owner, or was that no, no? So just uh, so it was, yeah. So. It was kind of a, a weird situation. It, the long time owner was getting out of it, and uh, and they the franchise passed it on to somebody else for a short period of time with the promise that, you know, Hey, take this over for this amount of time and we'll find a new owner. And that's how it kind of, okay. Yeah. I think he took it over in 2019. Hmm. Um, And then of course, I think he had, he added someone that stole money from him and then COVID and things like that. And, you know, maybe that burned him out. Yeah. That'd be fair to assume. I've seen a lot of people go through that's, that's, been a pretty challenging time, right? The end of 2019 and onward, we're still in some perspectives, it's still a very challenging time, but I, I think we're coming out on the other side of it finally now, you know, of uh, recovering from it. It's a different world for sure. Prices of stuff is, is through the roof. So, so you got the opportunity and took over and um, you said you've had to make some changes with personnel, but have you, do you feel like you've kept the bulk of the staff for the three stores? Yeah. I mean, I came in with no intention to eliminate anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just more of, you know, I worked with the people. I fortunately had some really good management in place that were, you know, running the stores and they, all of them were, you know, prior technicians. Right. And a lot of ex- industry experience. Uh, and, you know, so I've retained all of those guys. Mm-hmm. You know, we had, you know, not to sound degrading, but we had some, like in one store, had some guys that were claimed to be able to fix anything, but, you know, their only experience was working at Walmart. Yeah. And uh, they would, you know, all they wanted to talk about was getting paid more money. Mm -hmm. And I just was like, you know, I'm happy to have this conversation, you know, and, and I would just look at their, their numbers and results and say, Hey, you know, I can't, afford to pay what you're asking for based on this. But if you, 
I tell you what, if, if you're like, hey, I got to pay these bills, it's like, let's, hey, I, give me a week and let me look at this a week from today. I'll come back here. We'll sit down. I'll look and see how you did. Yeah. And, um, and they quit. So I, 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 didn't, I didn't really fire anyone. They just, they walked out. Yeah. Uh, and the, and that, that worked out really well instead of coming in and trying guns blazing, just going, I just had real conversations with people uh, on the goals and targets of the future of the company. And it's made all the difference. And when we get the right people in place, we, I pay to keep them. So I've, I've given a lot of people the ability to make a lot more money and through their, you know, hourly or salary and, uh, you know, bonus opportunity. I, they didn't have a bonus okay. uh, opportunity in place. So I put something, I put that in place and, and, uh, it's been pretty successful so far. So do they work predominantly flat rate or are they all hourly with a bonus? All the technicians are hourly with a bonus. Okay. I right do on. not have any flat rate mm-hmm. text. So, and they and, just, they, it's kind of in the area. There's not a lot of people that want to go flat rate is what I've been picking up on. A lot of people don't like flat rate over here. It's, it's, a, it's a shift in the industry that's definitely happened. Uh, I've seen it with my own eyes in the last five years, how much more, uh, cause I've been talking to a lot of people for like 10 years you know, online about different things, just different tech groups and stuff like that. And I can remember what at first when there were so many people that that's all they wanted. That's the only way they wanted to work was flat rate. And then I think I can't say necessarily what the shift was. Maybe it was COVID. Maybe it was the, uh, just a, a new layout of technology hit. I'm not sure. But now I'm predominantly seeing that there's at least 50% of the people have no interest in it. They want to be some kind of a guaranteed paycheck that they can earn and then be, you know, if the, if they are hustling, then they're producing, they'd like a bonus on top. And I, I don't know, I can't, I can't put my finger on what it is. You know, it's, I've heard people say that COVID hit them really hard and, you know, they, they, they felt all of a sudden like they would never go back to that unknown of what they could earn based on right. of what customers were coming in. Because I think for a lot of people, when they saw that everybody just, that could stay home, stayed home, you're right. Up here, we had a man. We we still have a large part of the population that's still working from home. Uh, they were able to do it, so they stay and work home. Now that doesn't mean that those people got rid of their cars, or you know. But let's be real: if you used to drive twenty thousand miles a year, just as a round number, to commute to work, and now you only commute to go for groceries or errands or whatever, so you may cut that mileage that you put on that vehicle. To down to a quarter of what you were well that thing doesn't break as often and it requires much maintenance right and that's where i think that has been the real effect is that you know people were not even dealerships weren't even having people coming in for recalls you know because they didn't come in everybody felt so like oh my god if i go out of the house i'm gonna get sick so they stayed home now we kind of know that that's not the case but it's still a lot of people adapted to being able to stay at home and they're home. And uh, I think that was a major factor. And I think the other thing is, is the technology gets more and more. And as sometimes I think as the OEs cut sometimes, like you hear now, everybody talks about, you know, at the OE level, they don't get paid for Diag. Now that's kind of a not 100% truthful statement. They get paid, but they don't necessarily get paid enough. So 
I think that if they're choosing a dealership as an example, they want an hourly paycheck because, you know, at least that way, if it takes four hours to find the brake and the harness or whatever, they get paid their four hours, right? And the car leaves fixed. So I think that's been the shift too, is that we've seen more techs um, get away from the nuts and bolts and have to go into, you know, and the proving of why you may have to put a camshaft in as an example or something like that. They're needing, they're needing that hourly time. What, what happened with your crank balancer, your harmonic balancer? Was that on a Ford with the, they didn't lock it before they take it? It's actually an old, uh, it's a Buick Lucerne. Okay. 3.8 crankshaft uh, car car wouldn't run and if it did it wouldn't run for long crankshaft position sensor yeah so the tone balancer got damaged yeah putting it putting it back on the uh, technician didn't pay attention and it looks like it may have got off Mm -hmm. uh, off the key yeah and and uh, it would it would run run rough and then uh you know the uh, one of the managers that had him pull the pulley off and put it put it back on right and ran ran like a sewing machine but had a knock okay yeah so yeah so at, you know maybe a main bearing or something like that because it ended up getting driven down the road <clears throat> in the mm. wrong position so it was you know basically off time he didn't drive it on by yeah. the hammer by chance. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody's admitting anything right now, but yeah, that's the, that's the thing is uh, trying to figure out, uh, yeah. you know, what I, what I do, what I do know right now is that, uh, uh, I've, I've got to find an engine tomorrow. Oof. Oof. And he kept his job. Well, we're going to see. Yeah. Now we have to get the engine in. He's going to be participating in that. He's actually a really good technician. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, we just, sometimes we just have things happen. Eh? It's, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to know sometimes. I mean, I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes. So I've seen lots of other, you know, yeah. really this good. This one just happens to be a pretty big one. <laughs> sure. Yep. It is. It is. No doubt. Now, I'm, I'm fortunate we have the ability to change the engine. Mm-hmm. So. <clears throat> Yeah. How's your customer customer handling it? Uh, well, you know, we had a call to him today. He hasn't returned a call, so we'll see. Okay. But, you know, the, the thing is, is that, you know, the engine, the car came in. When it came in, it was running really rough. Right. And it's, it's got some, uh, you know, things going on with it. It's got 200,000 miles. It's, it's missing, uh, like the whole glove box is out. The the panels under the steering column are gone. And we're like, you know, yeah, you know, there, there's a, there's a path here that is, you know, you, this is like, you got the angel on one shoulder, the devil on the other, which is like, you know, there's a path here. So, you know, you can put it on them. You, there was something wrong with this motor before we put the sensor on. Yeah. Yeah. That's, is it a three? But, uh, is it a what now? Is it a 3.6? It's the 3800 series yeah. motors, the three, that 3.8 yeah. liter V6. The older one. Yeah. 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 So it's just like, uh, you know, I, you know, I just really, I think at the end of the day, we have to try to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. No bad, you know, no matter how uh, bad it may hurt. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, that's that. And, 
you know, I mean, you just, you know, you just, when you're running three shops and you're just like, run, you're just running the things that, you know, you try to, you try to be uh, working on the business and not in the business and being proactive and not reactive. And, right. Yep. And when you're, when you're just a few months in and, you know, you're going to run into things that just, you know, make you shake your head. Oh yeah. Yeah. You'll never be, yeah. you know, you'll never not have, you know, problem free. It's that's a, that's a myth of anybody in right. the, the business. It's just how you handle them, you know, and that's um, exactly it. you got to have your process. It's high, it's high pressure no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, you had the, you know, like a, I had a guy that had a guy that was, wasn't, you know, that actually got a, arrested and, and uh, that was this week too, that was in the shop. So we had to, well, it's interesting the things that you'll uh, experience. Yeah, you, you think you've seen a lot, but you can always see something new. Oh yeah, yeah. It's um, <laughs> I've I've well, actually, I saw I saw a service advisor get arrested one morning. Uh, that was a first because uh, I mean, normally traditionally you'd think that it's the mechanics that would get arrested, but no, it was service advisor. Um, so that's, yeah. been, you know, we need to always remember that, that, you know, just because, you know, we can't always say it's the techs that are going to be the ones that are doing, you know, questionable things and getting the cops show up. This was the case. This was an advisor. So, you know, it's, uh, it takes a straight, it's, it's a strange bunch of people that work in this industry sometimes, you know, you're, it's a Midas franchise, correct? Yes. Yeah. Right on. It's pretty good, um, pretty big company. Yeah, there's a lot. There. I mean, obviously, there's they have a lot of uh, stores around mm -hmm. uh, the nations. You know, I think it's close to 1,100. Yeah, I've got three. Yeah, and you now they, <clears throat> you know, as far as the franchise goes, I think sometimes that's frowned upon. But you know, for me at the time, it was the right thing for me mm -hmm. to move into franchise, uh, especially with a business that was already open and operating, you know, we've got equipment, um, in place. <clears throat> so, you know, when I took over in March, the doors were open and we were, you know, turning wrenches and you know, yeah. talking to customers and stuff. So I was, you know, more or less, you know, make, you know, yes, I was distracted by a lot of things. When you change ownership, there's a lot of things that have to happen. Um, you know, it's like buying a house times, 10 yeah. and then you add you take that from one store to three stores it's you know times 30 mm -hmm. but it's you know it I had a lot of, I had a lot of good help and things like that to you know see it through uh, now I'm at a kind of point now to see okay what is you know the future of of our our our, our three stores yeah. in this franchise and like I said we've had a, I mean we've had it in and really anywhere from 80 to hundred percent increase in sales month over month. Wow. Compared to last year. So we've had a lot of really good progress and it's just by being engaged. Yep. I have conversations with my guys when I'm in the shops, I'm present, I'm around my two other shops are an hour, uh, almost an hour away from my home shop in right. Tupelo. So we, <clears throat> you know, I, I still, you know, go there. I've, uh, I have another, you know, kind of person to lean on. That's uh, my area manager. Okay. Uh, new into his role. Uh, did a really good job when I started and 
you know, he was someone that I was going to have to, you know, that I've been mentoring since I took over to, to get it step into a role to where he can be in charge of that day-to-day operations yep. and give more flexibility to me. Cause as far as, you know, trying to build the business and network and all those things, yep. but yep. <clears throat> the, like I said, the stores are improving. We don't want them to plateau. So that's kind of where I'm at is like, I don't want it to plateau. I want it to keep, keep improving and, and, uh, we are doing the right things by our customers and having good service. We, we've done things like moved over to, you know, digital inspections, which is, you know, all the rave. Yeah. So, yeah. and I've, I, I use, you know, multiple softwares to ensure I've got good communication with my customers and has a good follow-up process and that kind of thing. And yeah, the, the DVI is key. I think we're seeing that become such a trendy thing and um, it's not necessarily new, but I think it's really, as it becomes more and more commonplace where the, the customers are beginning to almost expect that that's how the interaction goes between, you know, the, the shop and themselves. They expect now to get like some pictures and, and an email and, and so on and so forth. Instead of just, I can remember it back in my day, at the dealer, it was just like they were in the waiting room and occasionally they would come out and look at the car, you know, or they just got a phone call. There was nobody was thinking about sending them photos, right? It wasn't, it wasn't a thing. I mean, we had email, but it, when we had smartphones, but nobody ever was like using it to that level. I think it's a good thing because it's like, you know, we talk all the time. The customers really don't know, you know, about a lot of what's going on underneath the hood or underneath the car. And you can say, oh, yeah, the strut is leaking oil. But to them, they, what does that really mean? Well, if you take a picture of it and show them that, yeah, here it is, and it's not meant to leak oil, you know, and it's going to cost X amount of dollars to repair, I think that makes them feel a lot better than just being told they have leaky shocks and it's going to cost X amount of dollars to repair, right? When they actually get a visual confirmation, I think that really helps build some of that. Yeah that that trust back that this industry you sound like the the dvi salesman well, right there you got it you got a you got a future well i mean i network with i network with a lot of you know as you do too right as true the, the people you're, you're are, right though you're you're right on i mean that's it yeah i i'm trying to transition eventually the long the the end goal for me is to move out of the bay and into an advisor role or something like that so not in the immediate, immediate future, but in the near future, you know, I'm not, I'll be closer to 50 than 40. So I don't want to be 60 and still having to be pulling on wrenches, right? It's, it's hard on the body, but I definitely yeah. see how that way of doing business, I think is definitely going to help, you know, trust is still a thing that's really lacking. Uh, a lot of customers, you know, still don't know really what they're getting. And I think that with most of us now, this generation being such a visual learners, everybody's very comfortable with software and, and uh, you know, smartphones and tablets. And we live on these devices that I think that it's just the natural way that it has to go. You know, I think if you're not doing a DVI, you're behind. I'll admit my shop doesn't, but it's my shop's a little different. We're predominantly like a fleet shop, so we don't have to, you know. My boss, it's it's his fleet, so I can bring him downstairs and show him on the vehicle, right? And uh, when it's 
a lot of the same vehicle over and over again, he's not even interested in seeing. He already knows, you know, why we're doing it and it just gets done. It's good. But, you know, DVI, I think, is is definitely a step forward. How uh, are you finding, like, so when you were talking about uh, techs don't want to work um, flat rate in your area, are you finding that you're, you're, you're getting people that at least will answer the job at postings or is, are you finding like the tech shortage is a real, real thing at the moment? Because we hear some people and they're like, I got all kinds of applicants, you know, and there are people that are like, you know, I've had, I've talked to a couple owners and they're like, I don't really think this, this shortage is, is a real thing. There might be a shortage of competent qualified, but there's not a shortage of um, applicants. Some people that run a really good business, they have a lot of people just waiting for an opportunity to work there. So what do you, how are you experiencing that? As far as the competent qualified? Both things, both things. Yeah, the competent qualified is the one that's, I would agree, is the shortage. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when you have them, you got to retain them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And as far as getting someone that can fill a spot, no problem. Right. Yep. Um, you just got to try to find somebody that has some good, good common sense. I mean, a lot of these, you know, uh, if you, if you got, you hire someone as a lube tech and they don't have a lot of experience, you have to be really careful, make sure they get on board in the right way. Yeah. I've already gone down a path where I, um, got some tools for a guy and, you know, I'm like already feeling kind of scorned because when I see the toolbox, I'm like, there's no pride right here. You know, it's like, cause they didn't earn it. Yeah. And so I've, I've been kind of thinking of other ways because, you know, I, I hear, I hear, you know, through the podcast and others that, you know, there's this like, why should we require, require these people to buy their own tools? And, and, uh, and, and I get it. I hear that. I'm like, I'm like, I get that, mm-hmm. you know, but right now I'm working with a shop where I, you know, my shops, these guys have their own tools. Yeah. Yeah. So when I bring on someone new, it's like, okay, I can train and develop this person. And, and, uh, and really I can't do it. What I, what I, what my opinion is right now is I can't, uh, or I don't want to do it when they first start out. It's like after 60 days, maybe and they're doing well. It's like, Hey, here's your set of tools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And after 12 months, they're yours. Right. You know, something like that. But I, I've got to really figure out how I want to do that because obviously there's an expense there. And, you know, it's just like with uh, the simplest thing is like a uniform. I mean, yeah, um, I got some motivation just by telling the guys I would get them uniforms. The prior owner wouldn't get them uniforms, <sighs> which is like the one of the basic standards in the industry. And, he, you know, he said, uh, you know, if you want a uniform, buy your own. I would think almost being a corporate store though, franchisee, but still corporate must be, they must have to look somewhat similar. You know what I mean? I would think they would have to have the same t-shirt on. Maybe they could change their pants up or something, but I would think that they would all have to have like a Midas logo somewhere on their shirt to record, to identify them at least as an employee and not just a random customer walking around. I well, yeah, I mean, there's there's a contract with uh, Centos nationally that get you know gets us you know certain pricing for the stuff, and 
he just and now they already have they already have everything you know i just have to you know pay for it myself yeah so you know just getting something that was so simple was you know really you know i mean guy and, and the thing for me is my, my the image of my stores i want when someone comes up i don't want them to be like do you work here yeah you know, I want for sure like hey okay yeah you got there here's your name and there you know it says minus and they work here so i just I've had to go through a lot of those little things. I mean, just even the, I mean, gosh, the, you know, not, not getting certain pieces, you know, there's certain equipment that wasn't working right. And, you know, it wasn't that complicated to get fixed, but it wasn't getting fixed. He did, He just sounds like a guy that was just pinching pennies, right? Just trying to, you know, uh, it's sad. It's yeah, it, it's it's sad that there's still people like that that and and don't take this the wrong way. I've often wondered sometimes exactly how qualified somebody has to be to take over. You know what I mean? A, a franchise location. Yeah, I mean it's all about the finances side of it. Yeah. If on the franchise side, I mean you got the money. That I mean, yeah, they're they want to they want you to be participant. Like they don't want you to say, "Hey, I'm going to be an absentee." Right. They don't want it. They don't want to hear you say that. Right. Yeah. Okay. But you also could just not say that <laughs> and then do it how you want. But isn't that cool that they don't look at it and go, okay, so before you can take over a store, we'd like you to have, you know, some kind of experience within the industry, you know, at some kind of technical level in terms of you understand it, you know, not just, okay, you're a business person, but you don't know a lick about cars or how shops should run. Okay. Yeah. But you've got the, the financing. Here's your store. That's uh, it's, it's a weird. It certainly can happen just that way, you know, and, and I've always worked on my, on my own vehicles and stuff. So I know enough, uh, I'll joke, joke around. I know enough to be dangerous. Right. Yep. Uh, but I do have to rely and I'm, I'm able to rely on the knowledge of others because I, I know, I mean, I've done that, for most of my career, I, I, I can't be the smartest guy in the room. No, it's just not, not going to work. Um, but I, I am pretty intuitive and I'm a good problem solver. So don't, don't try to, you know, paint a farce. Mm -hmm. I, like I can, you know, I can see, I can see through, uh, but it's, <clears throat> you know, I think with the franchise side of it, they have requirements they have to have legally, right? Like, you know, I had to do two weeks of franchise training and, and uh, I had to do, you know, before they awarded me a franchise, they had, you know, they had to interview me and my wife was even involved with that. And, yeah. and uh, you know, they just, they wanted to see if it was going to be a good fit. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know what that criteria on their side was, but it seemed fairly loose. Right. There were some things that were some hurdles. They, cause they really don't want you to have three to start. They really want you to have one. Yeah. So I was able to get them to agree to let me take three. Uh, but I didn't want to do just one. Mm -hmm. uh, and because I wanted to be able to focus on it and not be relying on, uh, you know, income from something else or something, you know, I mean, yeah. I wanted to be able to say, Hey, this is something that I can take a chance, take a chance on to where, you know, sink or swim. I mean, you might be talking to me a year from now and going to be 
be a lot of good things to talk about, you know, uh, some challenges we overcome, but, you know, overall heading in the right direction. Or a year from now, I could be broken, completely broken down. I don't know. I'm just trying to you know, move forward a little bit every day, get a little bit better every day. Well, that, that's, <laughs> that's what it has to be. And by the sounds of it, you're on the upswing for sure with this business. Like if you're already, you know, it again, not throwing shade at the former owner, if he should ever, you know, hear the podcast but it sounds like you you didn't have to do a whole lot to really make some improvements right just give the give the staff some some leadership give the staff some motivation and and it will take care of itself you know a lot of it like well the machine will run if you put some fuel in it you know and that's that's what fuel is 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 motivation and some leadership you know from that standpoint it's just you know I can't, the the uniform thing just makes me shake my head because I've never I've never worked in a in a facility yet where they didn't provide a uniform. You know, it's just it's not even thought of. I mean, I don't wear my work pants right now because it's a you know I wear shorts, but I mean I never don't have a shirt on unless I got it covered in grease and oil and and I'm in my t shirt underneath. But I mean that happens but I go and get a clean shirt eventually. Like it's the idea that you just walk in and they could be wearing any t-shirt they wanted with anything on it, walking around t-shirt, not tucked in or whatever. And it's just so, so on. It's not, it's not a professional working environment that way. It's just not. No. And it starts with like, and it starts with that. I mean, I've seen some dingy shops that looked you know, they needed improvement in terms of their image, but everybody inside the shop had the same uniform on. It might've been a dirty uniform, but everybody's uniform was dirty. At least they looked like a team. They looked like they belonged there. You know, they didn't look like somebody that right. had been dropping off parts or something, right? Like, and that's not hating on parts people. Please don't take it that way either. So, yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm happy that it, you seem to be, um, uh, moving up. The competency thing is that's a weird I mean that's a very multi-layered onion of a of a topic we can we can delve into that because you know we've got some people on one side of the argument that say that a lot of techs need to do more on their own in terms of learning the skill set right and then we have the other shop owners that are very much proactive about training getting them signed up for training getting them as much as they can um, does Midas have any training sent down from corporate? Uh, like the reason I ask is because um, up here, Midas is a pretty big organization in Canada, but Canadian Tire, if everybody's ever heard of that listening, and the Canadians obviously will, they're the largest player in the industry up in where I'm from. And they have their own training materials that they send down. But does Midas have anything for you guys like that? Or is it just they, they do have they do have training um, they have a training academy uh, but it is up to the you know owners to ensure that gets you know filtered down to the you know whoever it is whether it's service rider techs managers you know things like that and, and they have we have uh, they have uh, regional sales managers uh, so I have a guy, you know, when I run into a thing, I have a guy I can call, you know, if I've got an issue with, you know, like right now, I've uh, there's some uh, marketing stuff that is going out that I have some questions about. <clears throat> so I went to him for that. But, you know, he comes around to the store. He has a territory and he comes around to the stores. Sure. Yeah. You know, 
you know, maybe I may see him once a month or every other month. And, you know, he, he, uh, well, he, he confides to me anyways that he, uh, he likes going to my stores cause he feels like uh, he actually has an impact and he, cause he has, he's going to some of the franchises and they're just like, you know, you know, him Han. Yeah. You know, and uh, they don't want to see him. Right. <laughs> They, they yeah. want to they want to run it like it's their own business and not like a franchise store, which I get. But then at the same time, if you sign up to be a franchise store, you pretty much, you know, have to somewhat resemble what it is that they want to do, you know. And people think that that's so unheard of, but I mean, dealerships are the same way, right? There, there's more and more push every year in the dealerships that like you, people have heard me talk about it. They want the dealership in Toronto. As an example, to appear, to appear the same as the one in Tucson in how it looks and the experience of it and everything else. So, you know, your district managers and stuff that come around and are there to make sure that that's being done. There's no sense getting upset at them. They're just doing their job. So, but I think training is, is the is the big issue right now with so many shops and I see it all the time and they talk about, you know, this happened or you know my tech struggles with this or my tech struggles with that sometimes it's just we take in cars that we shouldn't take in but then if you take in a car that is is a problem car you have to be providing them with the training or the resources or even you know call a friend if it takes that um to get the answers that you need to be able to fix the car otherwise you shouldn't book the car in it's just it's that way you know you can't be bringing in a bunch of drivability in a shop to get solved if you predominantly just have you know re and reese type techs techs that are really good at you know taking parts off and putting parts on but if you've got a car that's running right there's some training there and to understand why to really make it an efficient manner why it's not running right and if you're not investing in that in your tax you're only shorting yourself as a business i'll say this you know everybody wants i, I, I can't i agree with you so much right now i just i you know like I, this is something i've been thinking about and this part of the reason i'm here and found your podcast and all these things is like i'm trying to figure out like what you know because very early on this was like the first week i remember telling you know, some of the guys, like, if you're having a turn away business, I want to know about it. I'm not saying we're going to do it. I just want to know about it so I can figure out if there's something I can do on my end to ensure it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, again, or uh, figure out a way to get it, you know, uh, what we need to be able to do it in the future. Yeah. You know, it, it, yeah. I tell for, for for example, the, you know, module programming and things like that. We don't, I don't, I don't have any programming uh, capability as it sits right now. I don't have an ADOS capability. Yeah. I don't have anybody calling for ADOS. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I see that as, and I don't want to say that it's specialized and that it's not that lucrative, but the investment to make yourself make some profit in that is a very substantial amount of investment. And then the tooling is not just the, the investment, the tech that can utilize those tools to sell that work is also not a cheap tech to get, right? They're a tech that requires uh, above average pay. So I, when, when I see shops and they reach out and they go, Oh, I want to, you know, I want to get into programming. You got to have a tech that is absolutely like top notch in solving 
drivability before I think you need a tech that's going to get into, you know, programming EEPROM. I think that so many miss the boat on the sense that if you look at the car and you can tell that there's, you know, that the software could be updated and you can find a bulletin that says addressing this software, for example, fixes a shift flare or fixes a bump or fixes a, a, an idle surge. Just being able to find that information and being able to figure out, okay, how do we sublet that now to get it done for our customer is much more valuable, in my opinion, than trying to buy a tool, get a subscription, going through the headache of trying to get that tool to work on that subscription on that day with the tech and make sure everything goes smoothly just to get the program into the car. That's not what I would call low-hanging fruit. I'm not trying to advise that everybody go after the low-hanging fruit, but you understand what I mean. You wouldn't want your tech to be trying to fix every misfire with a tune-up when there's updates that can be done software-wise and they're doing the process of actually finding that, yes, okay, this might need a software correction before we go after, you know, selling a part for the car. Because that's what... From my experience at a dealership, I fixed a lot of cars that had a lot of new parts on it because I just did a software update that had been there for a year, two years. There was a printed bulletin about it. Like it wasn't like it was some secret thing. So nobody likes to see when, you know, a customer's car gets a new fuel pump or a new idle air control motor or throttle position sensor, yada, yada, whatever, oxygen sensors. And cats were another one. They put on a catalytic converter and would still have a cat code. And then it comes over and it's like, oh, yeah, there's a software flash for that. You never needed the cats in the first place. If you've got a tech that can actually find that kind of information and come to your, your staff and say, hey, um, before we do replacements, it should have this. That's a tech that you want to retain and keep. And that's your tech that you can mold into somebody that if you're going to go to more advanced uh, repairs and programming and so on. That's the tech that you keep in mind for that because that tech already has the process that you need, right? If you just have somebody that like loads the parts cannon, as you've heard the, the term being used, and then when it still broke says, okay, it must need software to be fixed. Oftentimes when that winds up at the dealership, yep, sometimes, or not necessarily the dealership, but hypothetically, uh, it winds up there and it gets the software fix that customer is really jilted or it goes over there because it's a software fix and that person that's really familiar with that engine and that car as an example goes no these are known for burning valves like it was never going to be fixed with a tune-up and an injector and a cat and everything else it's got burnt valves so if you've got a tech that can do the diag invest in the training and the diag before you invest in my opinion anyway in the programming and the ados and everything else from your standpoint, where I would say your store. Now, this is just my opinion. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I'm not a franchisee owner. So, you know, I'm just a tech with a lot of years of experience and have seen some things. So, but you understand what I mean? Yes. Yeah, su subletting, subletting labor has been, has come, been coming up a lot in my conversation of, you know, we know it needs this, uh -huh. you know, let's send it to the dealer and not worry the customer about, because uh, that—that's what it's had had to be in a couple of occasions where we had to get the dealer to go program it or something like that, right? So, uh, you know, put the part in, program it, sublet labor, 
Mm-hmm. And what we're missing in kind of my area is I, we don't have any, you know, I think I was listening to one, 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 one of your podcasts where a guy makes a living going to shops and helping them do those kind of things. Tanner. And yeah. And we don't have that no. in our area. So for, for all the, all the strong diagnostic guys that are thinking about going mobile, there's a short Mississippi. Come to Mississippi. If you don't mind the heat, the people are nice, but there's, there's an opportunity there. Large metro area nearby Memphis. Um, so there you go. You got, but th- I think there may be some stuff up in Memphis. Maybe I should uh, branch out, but that's a, the main problem for me with that is, you know, they're, they're going to have to charge me hourly for the drive because mm-hmm. it's going to be an hour and a half drive. So what I always saw when sublets went wrong um, from the standpoint and not necessarily went wrong in the sense of getting the car fixed, but here's what I saw happen is too many times somebody just shoves the keys across the customer's desk or to the customer uh, bills them maybe a half an hour for a scan or something and says, Oh, it's got to go to the dealer. Well, the way you handle that, in my opinion, is that you set up the appointment with the dealer, you get the car there or the, or a programmer or another shop that can program. Right. And you take care of it for the customer and you charge for the time to do it. You keep that customer in your bay, right. In your shop. They have a rep, they have a relationship with you. The last thing you want to do is send your customer into your competitor's bay to get a, something as simple as an update done. Because we just had Chris Craig on the other night. Chris is a fantastic advisor. There are advisors out there that are not necessarily as ethical as Chris and would try to then, while the car is there, upsell a whole bunch of other things on the car. Now, I'm not against an upsell, but it has to be what the car needs. Do you understand what I'm trying to say, Jason? So if you send that customer over there and you go, oh, you should get this done, they may go over there when they get that done is when they're also going to get their next oil change because people like to make you know one trip, not two. Well, they all of a sudden might on that in, on their DVI, they might end up with a whole bunch of work sold. So that's why I've always been a proponent. If you're going to sublet, you handle it, you take care of it. You have somebody come to you or you take the car yourself and get it done. Don't leave it in the hands of the customer. The customer will appreciate that you take care of it for them. They won't mind paying the additional, what you have to pay to do it. Because let's be real, they may have never heard of a software update. They have no idea what it costs. So if your dealer is going to charge you 139 to do it, and you have to cover your expenses and some time to get it dropped off and shuttled back, whatever. If you charge one seventy nine, they're not going to bilk about that. If you keep them, you know what I mean. You can't lose money on it, is what I'm trying to say. And you have to keep the customer within your service area, not the competitors. That's how that works. If you're not going to invest in the technician and the tooling to be able to do those kind of software updates. That's how I saw for yeah. my years of doing it at the dealership, right? Like, I, I, yeah, I we're, we're in sync on the mindset with that because, uh, you know, the last thing you want to have is, you know, you want to have repeat business and you I have someone that talks that says, you know, I, I, I hate going to the dealer. And then, uh, but as soon as you send them to the dealer, then, you know, that kind of goes out the door. I can, but, I can tell um, you as a former dealer tech, I stole a lot of independence customers by how effective and efficient I was 
with doing that update because I didn't just do the update. I explained to the customer what the update was, why we were doing it, why it needed it, why, and here is the sorry part, why what had been done in an attempt to fix it that didn't fix it when it only needed the update. It's not hard to steal that customer from that shop that I don't want to say drops the ball, but approaches it from a different perspective, right? I've got no, like, hear me out. I have no objection if there's something, old caravans used to have a bulletin and uh, they would miss when they were cold. You did fix it with software. But at the same time, if it was up in a certain mileage, they were also prone for ignition wires to go bad, spark plugs, just like any other car. So we had cars that came in a lot that had new wires and new plugs in it, and they still misfired. Well, what we would do is we would do the software update, and if the mileage was correct, we would sell the tune-up. We fixed the car, right? That was the difference. So you can't, we customers don't want to hear the excuse anymore, as sad as it is, that you can't put the software in the car that they need. They don't want to hear that. They think that by now we all have the same access and we should be all doing it. And that's a different conversation. It's not what I'm trying to say, but that's how I successfully stole a lot of, brought a lot of customers into my dealerships was because how I approached that particular scenario. And it happens every day happens every day it's a it's one of those you know i've got an extra advantage when i worked at a dealer from from having that software and being so familiar with it and the ability to just flash the car i you know why did i do it because i do a lot of them i was trained on how to do it the two, we have the oe tooling you know oe tooling really helps a lot when you can do it you can do it without it but it really helps when you're using OE tooling. So to be able to get that done efficiently and effectively. So that's my advice for sublet. What else? Cause I'm not trying to tell you, I'm not, this isn't me just trying to sit down and tell you how you should run your shop, but going back to if it, diagnostic processes is a key thing. There should be, if you've got multiple techs in your facilities that do diag, there should be a, a definite process about how they get it done. Um, I'm not a fan of, one tech does it one way and one tech does it another. I think there should be a clear laid out, some basic tests that you do on the vehicle when you bring the vehicle in to look at it to start the process. I think there should be some similarity. Now, intuition plays a huge part of it. I rely a lot on my years of experience and my intuition when I'm fixing the car. So, but we all kind of start the same. You know, if we're approaching, you talk to some of the top techs, Almost everything starts with a scan and looking at data. And then, you know, if they're looking at a misfire, a lot of it starts with a relative compression test or um, a clear, what we call a clear flood crank. How does it sound? That kind of thing can save you a lot of time if you start to get familiar with that and know what it sounds like when it's a good, even engine. You don't waste your time moving coils and plugs around if you can start to hear that it's got a dead cylinder just by how it sounds. You save yourself a lot of money. So... That's what I mean by process as an example. Sorry, I got long-winded there. No, it makes a lot of sense. You know, I think that's an area that I've, that I've continued to kind of be focused on is our diagnostic process and ensure that when we, uh, you know, diagnose a vehicle, it's, it's truly going to fix the problem. Yeah. Yeah, whether it's looking at the uh, live data or what it is to confirm, you know, don't just jump to exactly what you're, uh, machine is saying initially just you know i think it's important to you know truly just 
you know, let's, let's confirm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that way we do the work one time. Yep. Yeah. And we don't have a customer that we have to call back and say, Oh, I mean, surely, sure. That's going to happen Yeah. from time to time. But you know, I'd like to prefer, I, I like the method of, Hey, this is what your car needs to be fixed. And then no surprises, you know, yeah. but yeah. Um, your techs are familiar with scanner Danner, I assume. And, and do they do online? Like, do you, do you have techs that are eager for the Diag or do you have kind of the attitude is, uh, they kind of grown and don't really seem that interested. I've got one or two that are eager and I've got uh, some that are just, you know, I know what I know. Mm-hmm. So I've got, you know, one guy that, you know, he's just, he's, he's going to be a suspension, you know, front end guy. That's it. He's not, yeah. he's going to be hanging parts. Uh, until he decides to quit or, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, he has, he has no ambition to further his knowledge and he already says he doesn't do electrical. Yeah. He's going to be, unfortunately, uh, well, I mean, again, we can get into the incentivized pay plans and how that sometimes can reward the, the people that do not, you know, do the actual complicated work I, under, I hate to sometimes use that term but that that can be yeah. the reality right he's he can still make a very lucrative living if he's fast and he's just hanging parts the industry needs to not necessarily stop rewarding that but there's got to be a shift to where more guys want to stay cleaner and not do as much heavy lifting and make more money because they can actually solve the problem versus just putting the part on that we've too often in this for too long, we've rewarded the speed of putting the part on and the reasoning for why we put it on has been lost or has only been able to be handled by a percentage. The dominant percentages should be who uh, people should be the ones now going after doing diag and electrical, because that's when we look at, you know, what the future of the automobile is, there's always going to be guys that have to do suspension, tires, brakes. The an EV still has all of that. But, you know, we shouldn't think that the guy that works at Tesla that would only be doing, you know, suspension work at a Tesla should make more money than the guy that can fix the drive motors and such because he can do the the suspension faster. That's not how it should be, right? The guy that can ultimately make the thing go down the road should get paid way more money than the guy that just slapped some tires on it or some brakes. That's my, that's been my crook in this industry for too long. So is the big, big challenge and adapting for the future, I think is just, you know, that's why I'm so like, uh, I put a lot, I'm putting a lot of focus on what we're doing for diagnostic is because I've got, um, I really want to change my scan tools and things like that. And I want to pick the right one. And, uh, we're demoing, uh, one from snap on right now, but it's, you know, you know, I, I've, I've heard, so many different opinions on scanners and all that stuff. And I'm just, you know, really, I'm just trying to, I understand there's not going to be one tool to do it all. And although that would be great, it's just not going to happen that way. Um, So I've got, you know, I've I've got a lot of things I got to work through on that. Uh, I'm definitely a fan of scanner data, but (laughs) I've been watching some of his stuff and, And, you know, I'm just trying to shift it 
shift the minds. I don't think there was a lot of mentoring going on, not just here, but in the past at other places that they've worked at. Yeah. And, you know, just having that like, Hey, you know, you know, the, the guy that was a professional basketball player, he didn't become a professional basketball player just by, you know, his, his, his mere ability, you know, you had to work on that to get really good. So you want to, you want to become a professional mechanic. You've got to work on all the things that, that, you know, kind of fall behind that name of mechanic or technician, whatever you want to, you know, whichever word you prefer. It's just, you know, really you want to be able, if you want to be a well-rounded mechanic, you've got to, you've got to get a foundation and all that facets of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But I think what's going to set you, what can set uh, you apart in the future is your ability to diagnose, especially electric. You know, we had, we had a problem vehicle in the shop not long ago. It was a, uh, a Hummer. Okay. Uh, H three, uh, 2008. And it was throwing a throttle body code and, mm-hmm. and, uh, it was clearly having a throttle body problem <laughs> and with the way it was running. And, uh, we put it on there and our, our tool will do throttle body learn. But for some reason that our coverage was from like 2006 to 2008 on that thousand five cylinder engine with a throttle body. It did not, yeah, it would not program that throttle body. So I took it to the dealer talking about sublet. I took it to the dealer and had them program it, come back and, and it was running the right way. Yeah. And, uh, but it was still going into a like a limp home mode. We're like, okay, all right, well, here's a new issue. So what's this issue, right? So it took it took a little while, but um, you know what it ended up being was a a chafed wire, yeah, on the frame, and uh, you know you got to be able to find that stuff. I, I feel like, or you know, I mean, it's just the throttle body. So the question comes in, you know, from a customer perspective is, did I need a throttle body? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and it's, you know, it's like a fair question. It's like, well, when we put the new throttle body on, it was definitely running better. Yeah. Um, but we still had this intermittent issue that was coming up. You could drive it for 30 minutes and then all of a sudden it would go into this limp home mode. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't like it was gasping for air or anything like it was before. Nice. But it was, uh, which is kind of a unique situation that you're not going to run to every day, but man, it's, you know, looking at the car, I mean, the, the wiring harness was bad. Yeah. I mean, it had, it had so many issues. I mean, you know, whether the customer understood at the end of the day or they just kind of shrugged off, you know? And so I, I got to ask you a question when you, how good are you guys at your stores of when you look at a car and you do your insp- preliminary inspections of it and you see issues like that, are you good about saying to the customer and saying to the techs, you're going to need more time to eliminate more variables or are you kind of stuck like with, okay, well, I, I have a really hard time selling additional diet. Cause we, we, we hear that conversation pop up from time to time about depending on the, the competency of the technician, a lot of people are re- reluctant to sell more diag time because they're not sure they're giving value when they sell more than an hour or two hours. Right. And I can see both sides of that because I've had, I mean, I've had some cars that it took me three hours to find the issue and fix it. 
you know, now my situation's a little different because again, it's a fleet shop, right? So it's, it's, we own it most of the time. But even when we do get into some customer work, um, we tell them up front, you know, we don't work at the one hour at a time and then I call you back and get another hour. We, we are going to need a few hours because of the condition of the car. And uh, if we find it faster than that, we're obviously not going to whack you the full three hours. But um, we do do that where it's like if we look at it and, you know, it's a car that lots of people have been working on and the harness has been manipulated and screwed with. Um, we charge much. Yeah, more. This, this car had a had a new nice new ground that was put on the block. <laughs> yeah. So somebody's obviously been working on it to try and rectify that and they didn't get it. So, and that's always what frustrated me because it just drove me nuts that it was like, okay, so it's been somewhere else and they couldn't fix it. You know, why is it not back there? And then I realized that, well, they're not back there because there's no faith in that person that attempted the repair, right? It didn't, or they, they've washed their hands of it and said, I don't know, I, I can't fix it. So people that are listening, when you get those cars, like you heard Paul Danner, you know, put a video up a couple, I guess a little over a month ago. Get that retainer. Charge for that. You're gonna you're gonna be invested in this car, this vehicle to get to the problem. Don't just think, well, the policy is we charge 150 for initial diag, and my tech has to find it within that time frame, or or make a guess. This isn't about guessing, right? Tests don't guess, Paul says. So you know, I'm not saying we have to pull the wiring harness out of every car to try and find that intermittent thing. But when they're when you've got time to do the shake test and the wiggle test and really really analyze the data and what's going on, you know that takes a lot of pressure off the technician because then they can just focus on what it is they're doing and not. When you only got an hour to diagnose something, and I mean I did it for years, you start you're always looking at the clock. How much how much time have I got left? Shit, I only got 15 minutes left and I, I'm no farther ahead than I was at minute one when it's now, you know, 45. And see, the reality is, is we say we got an hour, but they don't ever walk out to the advisor at minute 59 and say, I need more time. They're out going out at 15 minutes too and saying, I'm still not where I need to be. We're going to need more time. And then that last 15 minutes that should be applied to the car is in a, is in a, negotiation between the technician and the advisor for more time. And the advisor's going, I don't want to call the customer and the technician's going, well, I don't know what to do. It's, this is, you know, it's not acting up for me or I'm, you know, I found this and that has to be done, but that's not, do you understand what I mean, Jason? Like there's more to it. It's the customer at that point is not really getting even an hour. They're getting about 45 minutes. So this idea that we only sell an hour is, it's just BS. Yeah. We have to be selling. We're, we're losing, yeah. Yeah. I think the, the diagnostic thing is just, it's, it's really difficult. It shouldn't be, but it is. And then when you tell the customer, you know, like, Hey, um, this is our starting diagnostic. And you know, if it takes longer, it's going to cost you more. They don't like that open-ended feeling. Right. And it's like, okay, well, how long is this going to go? And then you go back to, you know, this where store manager or, or myself, you know, thinking about, okay, well, this technician may be able to figure this out in 30 minutes, but this one may take an hour and a half. You know, I mean, it's, there's, there's that too. Yeah. So it's, it's, 
So I, th I think you got to kind of start from that point of, okay, when the car pulls in the bay, you look at it like, whoa, this has got a lot going on down here. You know, we've got a, you know, a bunch of uh, chafe points in the, the harness and we've got some extra, you know, wiring and, and yeah. we're, we're here because there's some kind of electrical issue, running issue, running rough, you know, that could be very much caused by uh, this. And then, you know, the thing is, is that if the customer is going to go and say, well, you know, I don't want to do that. I just want to find out what that check engine light is. It's like, well, I can read the code and tell you what, you know, I can find out what it's going to tell me to say, do based on that code, but that's not going to fix your problem. And then what we're thinking on our side is, well, if we fix, if we did do that, just, you know, just three parts at the problem and, and that doesn't fix it. Are you going to be, you know, happy with that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, no, they're not going to be happy with that. Yeah, that was. They want you to fix it. Yeah, that was always. And I, and I think. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just saying, you know, like you don't go to the doctor and say, you know, I've got this, give me that. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, this is, you know, you're here at our shop. We're, we're going to look at your vehicle and fix it. You know, like it should almost be like a gen generally, this is where we're going to start, you know. You know, when we get to an issue where it's taking, you know, multiple hours to really diagnose what this issue is, you know, we'll, we'll communicate that with you. But, you know, I think it's there's got to be some kind of way to better message to where uh, the customer is going to just be like, you know what? Fix my car. Mm hmm. And, and that's what I am trying to drive is the fact like I, I want to be your car guy. Like I don't want to be the guy that just fixes your car. Okay. Uh, or just, just put some parts on it and send you down the road. Like I want you to, you know, say, Hey Jason, here's my keys. This is what I, this is what's going on. Just call me when it's fixed. Yep. You know, which, which should be, that's, that'd be great with every customer. But obviously that's not going to happen, but I do want to go for that interaction. Like it's just, you know, I'm not going to, people can trust us. You know, I'm, I'm a local guy. I grew up in the area these stores are in. I know a lot of people in this area. I'm not trying to screw anybody over. I'm trying to be here for a long time. So, and I want to have you know, a successful family business. Mm -hmm. So I, I, you know, I want people to come in and, and just, you know, be, you know, but you know, we hurt, we hurt ourselves sometimes. And I think that's where we've just got to get better at how we communicate is like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to fix your car. Right. Yeah. That's what we're here to do. So okay. a couple key points there. When you talk about different, different technician levels. Okay. The thing that I've always seen too many people when it starts to screw the, the process up is if you have a more challenging vehicle, just by the inclination of how it is, customer comes to you and says, it's been an ongoing issue. I can't, you know, Two other shops have tried to fix an example, or my uncle and my dad both tried it and they couldn't fix it. And you maybe got two technicians and one's really, you know, pretty competent and the other ones can get through it sometimes. Stop looking at what the scheduling is and make sure that you put the best, number one rule, always put the best tech that you can on the job that needs to get done. And this is the reality that too many people want to, be stressing about the scheduling and not getting the best tech. If that best tech is in the middle of, he's got three, four other ones before he can get to that one. Oh, well, right. The customer can schedule for when he's free. 
because too often when you put the guy on it that is, and this is not me, you know, talking down to a younger tech that isn't as strong, you wind up with a misdiag. And then once you have the misdiag, guess what? It's like that old saying goes, there's never enough time to fix it right the first time, but there's always enough time to have to do it over again. Right. So that's what you try to avoid. So you've got to look at your strengths of who you're dispatching to. And if he's, if you're, if he's dispatched a lot of diags and he's getting through them and they're complicated, that's a good thing. Okay. That's a good thing because he's getting through them. They're getting fixed. That's what you want at the end of the day. It can't trump it. Oh, well, you know, he dropped it off on Monday and here it is Wednesday and we haven't even got to it. Okay. Like maybe then he shouldn't have been told that we would look at it by end of day. Maybe somebody should have been honest with the customer and told them he is deep in the weeds on like three others. It might not be until Tuesday or Wednesday that he can look at it. Customers appreciate that honesty way more than just the the BS of saying, we'll get to it as soon as we can. And then when it doesn't go right, they don't care that you got to it as soon as you could. They're still mad because it's not fixed properly. So that's something that more owners, I feel, uh, need to listen to. Because in a perfect world, we would all have a bunch of, you know, Paul Danners in a shop somewhere and everything was getting fixed really quickly and diagnosed, you know, perfect and out the door and just massive turnaround, all kinds of car count going through and great money. That's a pipe dream for a lot. And, um, you know, with the situation that we're in with the, like you said, the technician competency and this technician shortage, if you want to do accurate, good diag, it takes time. And then there's no sense in having a customer try to dictate your process dictate your schedule. That's the two things that we, when we get ourselves in trouble is we let the customer dictate the process and we dictate the schedule. It's your business. You have to have a process. The customer doesn't come in and say, I want a tune up done because a car runs rough. Right. If you tell the customer, okay, we'll do your tune up. If you say that that should fix it, you just set yourself up for a very disgruntled customer because it may fix it, but oftentimes it doesn't, right? It's got a misfire caused by something else. And now you have a customer that feels like they were ripped off. Even though they came in and told you they did the diag and what they wanted done. You're the professional. You're the expert. You can take that into consideration, but there's still the pitch should be, okay, well, we're not object, you know, we don't object to doing a tune-up, Mr. Jones, but do you want the car actually diagnosed as to whether the tune-up fix it or not? And, and understand, I don't have a problem with, like, taking a spark plug out, and if there's no electrode left, yeah, he needs a tune-up. He's not lying. But the diligence still should be that it's like, okay, are the coils all firing? No, there's not a, okay, Mr. Jones, you need a coil and a tune-up. Or maybe we should recommend all six coils and a tune-up. Because, it's say, if it's a Ford product, that's not that unrealistic to try and sell. But if you do all six coils all six plugs and it's still got a burnt valve or a bad injector. Now you're into a problem. So you see what I mean? The process still is you get to the diag first and you know this, Jason, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but this is where, where the customers screw it up for us is by, they want to be in control. And that's an unpopular opinion, but they're not in control. You are in control. It's your shop. It's their car, but it's oh, yeah. right. That's how yeah. I feel. 
that's what saved me a lot of headache at the dealerships and the all the shops I've ever worked in. The customer doesn't come to me and ask for a tune-up. And even when they do, they don't get a tune-up until I know that, okay, yeah, it definitely needs a tune-up. But I can't remember the last time I did a tune-up and it fixed it by itself. It was like I had a Honda that needed a tune-up, but it also needed two coils. Uh, I've done our whole fleet of Fords. Yeah, they need tune-ups, but they normally, of the six coils, three of them are bad, right? We had one that uh, the mass airflow sensor is shot, plus a couple bad coils. Like it's, it's just, you know, everybody comes in thinking they need a tune-up. Tune-up's a, a, a stupid word anymore. <laughs> doesn't mean anything, right? Yeah. So No, I mean, I, I had that uh, <clears throat> happen to a uh, shop guy came in. I was like, I want to get my uh, coils and spark books changed. I'm like, what's going on with the gar? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and he was just, you know, um, his old, older gentleman, he just – He's just used to doing that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, changing the, you know, cap and rotor and yeah. wires and plugs and, you know, that as part of a normal tune up to a vehicle. And I'm like, well, I mean, is there a reason you want to change your coil packs? Yeah. You know, I'm like, Hey, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll certainly, you know, you got, you're at a hundred thousand miles. We'll certainly put the plugs in, but you know, typically, I mean, um, unless you just want to do it, if your coil packs are, you know, functioning. And yeah. I'm not going to recommend a, a replace it because it's got a hundred thousand miles on it. You know I mean? But if your desire is to replace that coal pack, because you know, you drive a lot of miles and you just don't want to risk one ever going out, then yeah, I get it. I'll do it. <laughs> so it's just, yeah, I just want to, you know, I just, I think sometimes you got to educate, take, take a step back and educate and not just look at the dollars, you know, you're like, yeah, I can do that. For sure. sure. For sure. And you've got to, You've got to be making good choices too with the parts that you pick to put on, right? Because everybody, you know, it, it's oh, yeah, yeah. Get all the auto lights, right? Yeah. <laughs> so how does that work with um? With I was going to ask that question. Being that it's a corporate thing, is it like, are you guys pushed to use certain certain brands, like or go through like are you pushed to go through Napa, or do you get slapped on the wrist if you call the dealer too much and put OE parts in, or? I mean, we're using the part houses, mm-hmm. you know, dealer would be our last call. Really? We can't get the part. So why is it? But, you know, I, I just, I use, um, yeah, our first call is going to, you know, typically be, uh, Napa or AutoZone for a lot of our parts. Yeah. Um, and that's just kind of how our system is set up to begin with anyways, to have that, we have a communication you know, with, with the, with their inventory in their stores. So if I'm needing, you know, something as simple as an oil filter, I don't have it on hand. Yeah. I know what they have and what will, what the hot shot over to my shop. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, yeah, I mean, it'll, it'll show up those, you know, low cost, you know, plugs, but we know if we put those on there, we're, they're going to be coming back probably Yeah. with a problem. So, um, we try, we try to go when it, when it comes to spark plugs, we try to go to OE, but it's categorized that way, mm-hmm. but we try to go with the OE recommended yeah. plug that's, uh, that's in the, you know, at the part house. Cause they have it segmented that way, yeah. like by brand. So I can, I can pull the different, uh, pull the different ones. We're, so. we're getting to where we're only using OE on any ignition pieces. And we're definitely 
it's about 50-50 in terms of when we put an oxygen sensor in, if we buy it from the dealer or if we buy it from an aftermarket source. The beauty for us is that oftentimes if we know, say, for example, Denso was the original manufacturer of that oxygen sensor, well, you can buy a Denso from a parts store, like a parts house. But the key thing is you've got to use the same part number when you're looking that up because Denso can put, I've seen it more than once now, can put different heater elements in depending on if it's a California emissions car or if it's a federal emissions car. So you'll get a Denso that will look the same and plug in, but it will not run properly or it will not fix your oxygen sensor fault because it's got the wrong heater in it. And then you're into issues like that where you jump from brand to brand. Chrysler for years, uh, the N- the OE oxygen sensor was an N- NTK. If you put a Bosch in there, that car did all kinds of weird things and um it's got to do with heater compatibility and the parts stores are always like the number one thing they sell is a bosch because you know they're pushed to do that well you might as well take it and throw it right out the window or leave the broken one in the car it made all kinds of nonsense and there's mr danner's done case studies on that and everything else but we i'm very lucky that you know my boss realized a long time ago that when I was saying I wanted to use OE as much as possible, there was a very good reason for it. Because, again, going back to, I fixed a lot of cars at the dealer when they came to me with new parts in it because I just put the OE part that was supposed to be in it and the car fixed. That's an even bigger kick in the butt because the tech wasn't wrong in their diag. They didn't do anything wrong with the repair. They just put a subpar part in. So, it's... Uh, yeah. You know, I've learned my lesson. Yeah, we've uh, we've certainly run into some situations to where, you know, bad parts. You know, we recently had some situation with uh, bad rotors and pads. Yep, we're getting that too. And, uh, you know, we had to upgrade, make sure we're just selling upgraded packages on pads and brakes. And, you know, we had the ones that come back, we warranty them out and uh, put new pads in, sometimes having to do rotors. But, you know, I just... You know, we, we got to a point where we called the parts house was like, look, something's got to give here because mm-hmm. I mean, this is not one car. Okay. This is yeah. coming back. You know, we're, you know, we're getting too many back and you know, we, we can only blame it on the part so much before the customer gets pissed off. Mm-hmm. So, um, they would typically, they would, um, what I've seen is up, they would automatically just up, give us an upgraded part, but you know, we just don't, we don't want to get into that. You know, we don't want to have return. Return business is the worst. No, so. It doesn't. Yeah. Cause even if the proper repair was, should have been $900 and the customer chose a $600 option from using cheaper parts. If they have to come back, they still feel ripped off. Even if they forced your hand on the $600 and people warned them that oh, it may have, you know, issues, they still feel ripped off. It's, it's the way that they're wired. They feel like, you know, that, customers feel that all parts are the same that's the thing i've found is why so many people want to come in with their own parts is because they feel that all parts are the same and what you buy on the internet is the same as what you buy at the parts store and all you're doing by buying on the internet is skipping the middleman and saving a bunch of markup we all know that's bs that's not the truth there's some really junk on the internet there's some good parts on the internet too but if I buy it from the internet and put it on your car, I can't, I can't warranty it. I can't stand behind it. And we need to be selling, you know, value when we sell a repair, 
which is that protection that, that, you know, I stand behind it because I chose it. You choose it. You get what you get, you know? So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's certainly probably, you know, some places that are choosing the lower end part for a lot of things to try to save on that cost or whatever it is. But we just try to, you know, ensure that we're using the, the best product we can within yeah. reason to, you know, ensure that they're not coming back to fix the same problem later. I just, I've already seen it too many times and, and we were using what we thought were the right parts for in some cases. And, mm-hmm. you know, we had to switch who we were buying the parts from, you know, I mean, just, just, it, it is what it is. And I think it's just, you know, the, the, the manufacturing process is, change and caused quality issues or, you know, quality assurance is just not there like it used to be. And, you know, you got, you know, places that, you know, that not to get off on a tangent, but like turning rotors. Yeah. Like not a lot of people are doing that anymore. No, I, I, I used to do, I've done thousands of them. And I'll tell you when we used to do them is when you, when you're at the dealership and the car is like not two, not even two years old. Right. And it's got some, uh, rust up here is a big deal, right? So <laughs> you get a lot of surface rust or, or you know, or, or the customer wears the pads out. They don't groove the rotor, right? They don't heat the rotor up. It's just a worn pad. I've had lots of success of taking that rotor off and just machining it, taking a light cut, putting the new pads on, been fine. But it, it offsets very quickly by the time the customer pays for the labor, once the car is a few years old and the, the aftermarket kind of catches up with the pricing of a replacement rotor, or even the dealer gets what we call, you know, a value line rotor to put on, which is still a good part, it offsets the 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 reasoning to to machine them because you're giving the customer a better a lot of aftermarket rotors are still a better option than a machined OE rotor for several reasons, right? You heat the OE rotor up after it's been cut. We all see a pulsation come back after that. Sometimes if it takes a couple of hammer swings to get it off the hub, like up here in Canada, you're not going to machine that true, not without going past the minimum. So, you know, I've had to machine more drums than I've ever had to machine rotors as of late because it's a way easier to get a rotor that will work than a drum that's not out around. And that's, that's a tough thing. That sucks because I put lots of rotor drums on and then had to take them off. And at the shop I'm currently at, I don't have a lathe. Every other place I've worked up till now, we've had a lathe. So, you know, you just walked it over there, stuck it on the machine, went back and did something else. That's the trick I'm finding. But again, we're not seeing a lot of drum breaks anymore. You know, there's, uh, are they still out there? Sure they are. But, you know, I mean, they, they last a lot longer most of the time. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you have a do you have a yeah. lot of customers bringing you or trying to bring their own parts in? Uh, uh we do we do see that pretty often. How do you handle that? Well, right now, and I and I hesitate cuz I it's something I keep talking about is just Yeah, you bring in outside parts, we're going to charge you um, you know, labor plus 20%. Mhm. Uh, our standard labor rate plus 20% to put it on. Um, you know, I just, you know, just, we had a customer come in, they're putting brakes in 
they're bringing their own brakes and so we put them on. I was like, well, by the time we put them on, I mean, another 50 bucks, you would have, you could have got our brake package. Yeah. And you would have had, yeah, you still had all new parts. And on top of that, you would have had a warranty, a warranty. Mm-hmm. And, and you can tell them, it's like, yeah, I can put your parts on, put you in your warranty. But again, it never comes back in your favor if there's something that goes wrong because the power of the internet, they can go write all the bad things they want about you, you know, uh, when it could have, it's really was them and their, you know, Amazon coil pack or whatever it was. But, um, we had a scenario <laughs> two weeks ago, uh, a new customer came to us kind of as a referral from a new employee that we had. And they showed up with a 2006 Chrysler 300, all kinds of, yeah, it's an old car. Long story to that. <laughs> and they showed up with a, a back seat full of uh, front and rear brake pads and rotors for it. So it goes onto the hoist and gets all torn apart. Well, all the parts were ordered wrong, wrong application. So now I'm not of the school of thought that I'm going to put that back together and put it outside and let that customer source parts again. I don't give them the option to screw it up twice. So now they're getting the job done the way it should have been done, which is the first one, because every caliper on it was shot. I mean, it's why wouldn't it be? It's a 2006, right? You're talking almost 20-year-old calipers. You'd be a sucker to reuse them. And all the parts are wrong. So what they had thought was going to be, you know, $200 in parts or $400 in parts wound up being to get the right stuff and the stuff that we can put on and stand behind the warranty, $800, $1,000, right? And they grumble about it, but we're not tying up our hoists and waiting for them to to play parts man on the internet and try another set to see if they're the right application. We just do it ourselves. And that's the other thing that too many times when I see shop owners and like, oh, I'll put them on. They're not telling how many times that what they brought in wasn't right. You're tying up a bay. There's no way you're making any money if you're not charging them for the time that the bay is wasted for the proper stuff to come in, right? I'm not, if you do the job twice, if you have to put it back together or push it outside, they should be paying for that. If the parts are wrong and you don't want to pay them, charge them for that. And you now got to hold that bay hostage while the parts come in. You got to be charging them for that too. It's just the way it goes. That's why we don't allow it. And this was, you know, first time customer in the shop. They learned. You're going to learn today as the the kids say, right? You're going to, you're going to learn today. Because we don't, you know, there's a reason that we do it and we don't buy the parts from the online place is because we want to get the right part the first time. So allowing the customer goes back to, like I said, your process is your process. You allow the customer to dictate your process. The wheels tend to fall off. It doesn't tend to go the way it's supposed to go because it's not their process. It's yours, right? They don't, they're not, they don't appreciate our time factor. They just think we're trying to rip them off or we're trying to, you know, overlook what they want to do. It's not that. If the parts, if Rock Auto was the best parts supplier in the world, every shop in the world would use them. There's a reason they don't because Rock Auto makes mistakes. Uh, Online parts sources are, are make mistakes. They're selling, they're selling a level of part to a different type of customer. Doesn't mean it's junk. It just means it's not what we need to be doing as the industry is putting on customer supplied parts. And I know probably sound like a hypocrite because we did, or if we let, let one in the door, but 
it doesn't normally happen. Uh, and I don't intend to let it happen again. So, because there's no reason for it. They can, they can go. And this is the thing they were intending to do the job at home themselves. This is how this started, but then they couldn't get the rotor off. So now they bring it to a professional. Good. I'm good with that. I don't mind it. I'd rather everybody brought it to a professional than do it themselves. But once you're in my bay, I dictate the process, not you. Right. If yeah. you want to dictate the process, you do it home yourself. Right. So I mean, it's a, it's a valid thing. I mean, because I know it's happened to where you know you got something apart, and it's like, okay, we'll slide it back together real quick, and mm-hmm. and then uh, until you come back, it's like, no. Well, no, we got to be compensated for this time. You know, there's a reason you you probably you know I, you know very well they could have called two three other shops and said no, we don't install mm-hmm. here. Yeah, you know, install aftermarket or your, your supplied parts. You know, we, we had a misfire come in on a, you know, like a, it was like a 03 Toyota 4Runner. They had a you know, cylinder five misfire and, yeah. and uh, go to look at it. It's a brand new cool pack sitting there on it already. Yeah. So, and it was not, I, I've never seen this part name in my life. Mm-hmm. So there's no telling where they, where they bought it from. Yeah. So, but I, I do know one online one that I've had good experience with would be, uh, uh, well, this is just when I was DIY, my BMW or Mercedes that I had or whatever that I was working on, I would buy from S- FCP Euro and I never had any issues with their parts. I think that's might be the company that Lucas and David did a podcast with that uh, maybe the president or the people that founded that company. Anyway, I could be totally wrong, but I remember them having somebody on that was strictly like Euro online selling, like he said, they sell the same part that the OE would have, the exact same part, you know? Yeah, they, they put together these packages that are, you know, nice. I had to, you know, they had to do an intake uh, manifold on an E-Class and, mm-hmm. I had those little, he has those little plastic, uh, uh, we call them for the controlling that different airflow and the, air, the airflow. I'm, I'm forgetting, but yeah, the an active intake. Yeah. 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 So they, uh, you know, they, they fail their plastic, get brittle. So but they had a, you know, nice fully set up package with all the, everything you would need to, you know, so they're just thoughtful in what they put together on, you know, for that DIY guy, or maybe, I, I don't know if some shops are using them. I'm not using them for my shops, but, mm-hmm. um, cause it's always two, three days out minimum. So, um, it's just, uh, I, I think there are some good ones out there. I mean, I've bought parts from rock auto myself yep. when you couldn't find them. Rock auto had it for whatever reason, but I find especially as the vehicle gets older, like I, up until last year, I was still driving a 96 Cherokee. And OE parts were getting hard to find, really hard to find. And it wasn't even a question of price. It was, but they would have, I can't remember what it was I needed. And the dealer's like, mm, can't even get that anymore. But Rock Auto had one. You know what I mean? So it's it's just a situation of there's nothing wrong with them when they're used properly. I think it's Ivan from Pine Hollow Auto Diagnostics on YouTube. 
a lot, he buys a lot of parts from Rock Auto because he's got his business set up where it's like he looks at the car, the car's sitting out at the end of his driveway, and he normally gets delivery of Rock Auto the next day. Right. So it's not terrible if you're if you're can schedule your work where you can look at it. And he's not a big facility, right? So the parts arrive, but he's also, I'm sure, the parts have been wrong or the part didn't work, you know. That can happen whoever we buy from. There's no no perfect scenario yet. I Lord knows I worked at the dealer and I got parts right out of the box from the dealer that did not work. Uh they got the part wrong all kinds of times. <laughs> it didn't didn't matter. Um, it's just going to be part of the, part of the business. Um, what do you see the biggest challenge right now then in your, in your, in your business? Is it the technician shortage or is it technician competency or is it, what's the biggest issue? I think the biggest issue I have now is that I'm trying to work through is, uh, ensuring that front end piece is done correctly mm-hmm. um, on the, you know, the service manager, service writer and handling um, customer objections and being, being a professional right? in the sense of, you know, this is, you know, this is why your vehicle needs this and being confident, not freezing up at no, not, you know, I think, I think that's just a big part of the sales process on the front end that I continue to work on and focus on and see a lot of the weaknesses that I kind of pick apart. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I can talk to a customer face to face and if they ask me a question, ask a question, I don't know the answer to, they don't, I don't skip a beat. Okay. You know, I'll, uh, I will pause if I have to get the answer if I need to, but you know, you know, generally I don't skip a, skip a beat. I don't get tripped up. But it goes all the way down to just that, just the customers that are calling it. You got people that are calling in part part shop or price shopping, and yes. you know how do you handle that? And there, there's just so many things. I was looking, listening to a podcast that really addressed that um, with the with the price shopping, and they they, they never give quotes over the phone. Um, I think it was off a yeah, changing the industry podcast that I was listening to, but it was. Uh, you know, I, I just, you know, just trying to instill that in the, in the mindset of like, Hey, when someone calls in and say, how much does it get breaks done? Like, don't just say, you know, our package number. I mean, cause yeah. it doesn't apply to every vehicle by the way. Yeah. And I don't, and I've actually said this even recently, don't start a customer off with a lie. Like you're, you're like, we don't know this customer. Don't start your relationship with that customer off with a lie. It's like, Hey, why do you think you need breaks? You know, what's going on with your car? show some care for them and what they're trying to get done. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it's like, Hey, come to the shop. We'll, uh, we'll certainly go over what you need on the vehicle. We'll keep you in part. We'll keep you involved in the process. That's why we're doing the DVI. It's like, we want to get the customer involved in what's going on with their vehicle, show them what it is and get them to approve the repairs, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So I, I Understanding that and the bigger picture of it is the biggest thing I'm working on uh, in my shops. And I think it helps as we get better at it. It helps with our, our overall process and sales and all that. So have you looked into service advisor training? Yes. And uh, right now it is, it is, uh, it is me, the service advisor trainer. Okay. (laughs) 
but no, I got no, I, I got to diversify it. So, yeah. Lucas and David just came back from the name of escapes me. Uh, I think it was a two day course or three day course that they they just came back from that was that was focused solely on um, on bringing up your service advisors. From all accounts, what I've heard is it was really good. So it's uh, I think yeah. that's people have heard me say. This is not me ripping on service advisors, but I think that you could make the argument in most shops right now that there's more training that needs to be done on the front counter than on the back out in the back shop. That's kind of where I'm at right now. You know, and, yeah. and that's an unpopular thing to say because we talk all the time about the technician competency, like we've talked about it tonight. But I believe that if you spend a little more time with focus on, on your service advisors, training and their processes um, you'll eliminate a lot of the problems that happen in the back of the shop and yet it can't work the other way the same you know what i mean like you, you can have a competent tech and a competent repair and if it's not handled properly by the advisor it's they're still going to give you a, a crap review so yeah and the and the, and the technician is going to be you know felt scores like what well, yeah it's like every time I make they make these recommendations, like I don't get anything approved. That's you know, right. like what's the deal? Yeah. Or just Every, uh, everybody's that everybody's that cheap. <laughs> so, you know, you know, for us on our uh, franchise side and, and our business side, we we even have you know financing options for our customers. So there's there's ways we have to try to help them. You know, the big uh, case in point just today, just you know, being in one of the shops and. That technician does a really good job on his uh, inspections and and uh, very good communication between him and the the shop manager who was you know acting as the service rider manager. Uh, you know, it's like, hey, the cars you know it's coming for an oil change. The car needed uh, rear brakes and needed two new rear tires, mm -hmm. and and uh, that's what he made recommended and uh, and. Uh, it happened so fast. He was already doing the work. I was like, I look back and I was like, you know, I saw the guy come up and I, I maybe I got distracted, come back and they were doing the work on the car. And I was like, Oh, okay, well, there you go. Well, you know, you made the recommendations and told the customer and he said, go for it. So we got, we got right on it. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and that, that doesn't happen that well every day uh, or every time. And that's, and that's, that's what we got to get better at is just the technician brings it. You know, the finalized inspection to the service rider and the service rider gets right on it to, you know, talk to the customer on what, what the car needs and gets approved. Yeah. Hey, if you could do me a favor real quick and like comment on and share this episode, I'd really appreciate it. And please, most importantly, set the podcast to automatically download every Tuesday morning. As always, I'd like to thank our amazing guests for their perspectives and expertise. And I hope that you'll please join us again next week on this journey of change. Thank you to my partners in the ASA group and to the Change in the Industry podcast. Remember what I always say, in this industry, you get what you pay for. Here's hoping everyone finds their missing 10 millimeter, and we'll see you all again next time.